If you got a Bible raised in the air tonight, let me see it all across the room. Most beautiful sight I see any week is this right here. Let me see it all across the room, high as you can. Unbelievable. Open that Bible up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Like Smoking the Bandit says, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there, so I'm just going to dive right in tonight. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be going in order to understand where we're going. we got to see where we've come from. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, you got to understand this, Jesus has come out of being tempted by the devil. And he comes right out from being tempted by the devil, right into the work of calling his disciples. I love this passage of scripture that we're going to dive into tonight because it is the first sermon that Jesus ever preaches. And I can think of nobody better to learn from what it means to follow Jesus than Jesus himself. And so tonight I want us to look at and unpack and unfold what it looks like to follow after Christ. And so let's pick it up right here in chapter 4, verse 18. If you're there, say I'm there. That's weak sauce. You can do better than that. If you're there, say I'm there. Here we go. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 19. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, after an hour or so, they followed him. Is that what verse 20 says? Is that what it says in your Bible, yes or no? I can't hear you. Is that what it says in your Bible, yes or no? No, what does it say? Immediately, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Verse 22, after a month or so, they followed him. Is that what your Bible says in verse 22? No, what does it say? Immediately, I don't know if you're catching the trend here, but immediately they left their boat and their father, and followed him. Now I want us to think tonight about what's actually happening right here. You've got four men, two sets of brothers, who, who their livelihood is to catch fish. That is what they do to eat, sleep, drink, and by default breathe, is they fish. If they don't catch fish, they don't put food on the table. Do you understand that? And here comes this dude rolling by on some Jerusalem cruisers, and he just knocks on their boat and goes, hey, come follow me. And what do they do? They follow him. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what your mom or your dad or your, your, your adult at home does. I don't know what they do. But how would you like it if they came home from work and goes, hey, listen, I want you to know uh, I'm following this dude all over the country. He just came into work today, knocked on my cubicle, and I was out. It'd be a little weird, right? But not, but not only does it happen one time, but then he goes to another set of brothers who actually happen to be in, in the family business, as we know, because their father was there and they were fishing with their father. They're there in their family business, and, and they too leave their family business, their livelihood, to go and follow after Jesus. Now, you've got to understand something about Jesus. His reputation did precede him. At this point, they, see, they, they saw him as the greatest rabbi to ever live. you got to understand, their adversaries, the disciples' adversaries, everybody say adversary, that is their enemies or their people that would look down upon them. The Bible records that them as being seen as unschooled, ordinary men. Here's what you've got to know, that in Jewish school in that time, only the best of the best of the best of the best ever got to be discipled by the rabbis. And so now here's the greatest rabbi of all time, the greatest teacher of all time is coming by my boat, and he wants to talk. I ain't been in school. 
and he wants to come by and he wants me to follow him? Absolutely. How much, how much does it mean to them that the greatest rabbi of all time would ask them to follow in his footsteps? So much so that they're willing to give up their life for him. Willing to give up their life to follow after Jesus. And that's what they do. They give up their, their livelihood. They give up everything that they know to go and follow him wherever he goes and whatever it is that he is going to ask them to do. Now I want you to keep that in mind as we continue on because we're, we're getting somewhere tonight. I, wanna, I want you to keep in mind that, that contrast of four men who leave their livelihood to follow Jesus. Check this out in verse 23. And he, meaning Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee. How much of Galilee? How much? I can't hear you. How much? All of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. How many diseases? How many? I can't hear you. Every disease and every affliction. How many afflictions? Every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him just a couple of the sick. Is that what your Bible says? What does it say? They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. Verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So now, here's what you need to see tonight. Jesus walked by some men's livelihood. He walked by their office, and he said, hey, come follow me. By the way, in, in Jewish culture, that's exactly how a rabbi would ask somebody to be their disciple. Disciple just meant wearing your dust on my shirt. It, it simply it was, was about that I can follow so closely in your footsteps. And so they knew what Jesus wanted them to do when he said, come follow me, and, and they did it. But now Jesus is healing everybody. And, and listen, this isn't, this, this isn't abnormal for him to get a great crowd after healing everything. I mean, can you imagine if some dude pulled up in your parking lot out here in an RV? And just said, hey, I'm healing every disease and every affliction. I mean, you'd be skeptical at first, but, but you'd go home and get your ADD brother and bring him up here and see if he could get healed. You would do that. And you'd bring him up here and you'd see that he got healed. Man, that's crazy. And you start posting about it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, whatever else it is that you use. Parlor apparently is becoming a thing now. I don't know what that is. But uh, anyway, and so you, you'll, you'll do that. And people from other states will do that. And there'll be a great crowd of people that will be in your parking lot because everybody wants to get healed, man. You can do something for me, so I'm going to be here. So initially we see four men who gave up their life to follow Jesus, and now we see hundreds, if not thousands of people who are following after Jesus, not because they gave up their life for his, but because maybe, just maybe, he could do something for them. Maybe he could do something for them. And it, it reminds me, as we're getting into the Christmas season, one of my favorite Christmas movies, and you guys may not think it's a Christmas movie, but I do. I don't know why I think it is. Uh, whatever. It's, uh, it's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You guys know that movie? You guys know that movie? Yeah. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. See, many, many people like to, like to demonize Willy. They like to say that Willy Wonka is the demon of this story, man. What a, what a, what a rude old man, right? They, they think that, that he's the actual demon in the story. But what I, what I want to challenge you with tonight is that it's not actually Willy Wonka that's, that's actually the, 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 the bad guy in this story. In fact, I think the bad guy is somebody else. I think we had a picture of the, of the bad guy that I think it is. 
Yeah, Grandpa Joe. Grandpa Joe's the bad guy. You go, Mac, he's just an old grandpa. How can you you hate Grandpa Joe? Well, it's pretty easy. Grandpa Joe, have you guys seen the movie? Anybody seen it? Grandpa Joe. You remember Grandpa Joe, right? He's laid up in the bed. They're eating literally water soup. She's, yeah, they're poor. I get it. That's my point. They're, They're eating water soup. The mom's cleaning the house. Charlie Bucket's doing whatever he can to earn a living because Grandpa Joe can't walk until he gets a ticket to go to the Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory. Then all of a sudden, he's dancing around. Hey, me and Charlie going to the chocolate factory, right? He's the real villain in the story. Grandpa Joe can't be, can't be bothered to get a job, can't be bothered to do anything else, but man, when there's a cool trip to go on, I'm there. Hey, you know what? Legs feeling all right. I think I can go. You remember? What a villain, man. But is the same thing not true of us in the life of Christ? You say the same thing is true for us, for you and for me. We think Jesus sounds great in theory. We think a relationship with Jesus, well, we're in the Bible Belt of the South. It's just what we're supposed to do. So we go to church. We, we, we get raised in a wonderful church like this. And we go, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm supposed to do. Oh, but you, you don't want me to do that? Well, nah, Jesus, I can't do that. Uh, you want me to talk to that person? Nah, I can't talk to that person. Oh, we're going on a mission trip to Africa? Sign me up, Jesus. I love following you. Everywhere you go, I'll go, Jesus. Right? Oh, we got a big Wednesday? Oh, can't wait. Hadn't been to church in months. Here I am. Big Wednesday. Maybe I want an iPad, right? I mean, the reality is for us, our relationship with Jesus is based on the convenience of our soul. If it's convenient for me, then I'll do it. If it's not, then I won't. And if you see the stark contrast in people, what we've got here is four men who go, Jesus, wherever you go, I'll go. Whatever you say do, I'll do. And then you've got a crowd of people who go, dude, you can heal me? Sweet. And that, and listen, Jesus never misses a beat. This is all very intentional by him. The Son of Man never misses a beat. Check out what happens. Jesus is setting the stage for the greatest sermon ever preached. He literally knows exactly what's going to happen. Because check out what he says. Seeing the crowds, chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus saw the crowds, and he went up onto a mountain. Why? Theologians argue about this issue. Was it so that, they, that he could be heard? I've been there. I've stood on that mountain. And, and it's, it, the acoustics of it, is, it's weird. You can hear all the way down. And so what I think happened was I think Jesus knew that those other people would be able to hear him. But I actually believe, and I'm not alone in this belief, but I believe Jesus was speaking directly to his disciples. That he was speaking to his disciples, knowing that he would be overheard by a crowd of people. But he was speaking directly to his disciples. Why? Because what he's about to unpack and unfold for two chapters is what it looks like to follow after Jesus. And he knew that those four men that he had just called, along with the other ones that followed him up there, 
they were the ones that were willing to sacrifice. Do you understand that there's two groups of people? There's the crowd at the base of the mountain, and there's the committed that are sitting at his feet. There's the crowd, and then there's the committed. The crowd can't be bothered. Oh, you want me to hike all the way up there? No, I just sit down here where you were healing me earlier, and I'll watch you. I can see you. I mean, if you go there, you, I mean, it's not, a, a, like a, it's not Mount Everest, right? It's like a hill. And when you come back down from there, then I'll follow you some more. But I'm not going to walk all the way up there. And the sad truth tonight is there's many of us in this room who tell Jesus the same thing every day. I mean, Jesus, when you come back to me, I'll follow you. When you do what I think is convenient, when you do what I want you to do, Jesus, then I'll follow you. But I'm not going to walk all the way up there. And so tonight, the question you have to ask yourself is, are you part of the crowd? Or are you part of the committed? And Jesus unpacks for us really quickly tonight in three simple verses. Three things that it means to follow after Jesus. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? you got something to write with, something to write down on. Write these things down tonight. So what does it mean to really follow Jesus? Point number one, what it means to really follow Jesus is have nothing spiritually. That's point number one tonight. Have nothing spiritually. You find it right here in verse number three. And he opened his mouth and taught them, verse two. Verse number three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have nothing spiritually. You see, far too many of us come to Jesus and go, hey, I, I, I like this part of my life and this part of my life and this part of my life and this part of my life, but this part right here, that's what I need help with, Jesus. That's what I want you to change. And what Jesus says to that is, no, nah, dude, you got to come to me poor in spirit. That is that you don't have anything. you got to come to me like Charlie Bucket. You ain't got nothing. you got to come to me poor in spirit. The reality is, is what does it mean to follow Jesus saying, Jesus, i got nothing apart from you. But the problem is, for far too many of us, we believe we have something to offer Jesus. Uh, you must not have heard me tonight. I said, for many of us, we believe that we actually have something to offer Jesus. Here's the reality tonight. We have nothing to offer Jesus. Do you understand we were created to worship Jesus. There is nothing we can bring to Jesus. I have a buddy of mine that when he got married, his wife is way smarter than him, much like my marriage, right? His wife is way smarter than him. She already had a real-time job. He literally brought like a TV and an ironing board into their marriage, and that was it. She had the house. She had the, she had the car. She had the everything else. And some of you are like, dude, I wouldn't do that. Jesus did. That's the type of relationship that Jesus desires of you that you understand that you have absolutely nothing to offer him. It's the glorious exchange of our rags for his riches. The problem for us is many of us want to hold on to our rags and grab his riches. That's not how the gospel works. It's the glorious exchange of our rags for his riches that gets us glory, that brings us into the promised land. But for far too many of us, we want it to be on our terms, and that's just not how it works. It's not, just about, it's not just about getting into heaven. It's not just about not going to hell. It's about saying to Jesus, you desire him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Not just the Savior, but you desire him to be the Lord of your life also. That is the, the God who sits in heaven, who, who cares about the intimate, intricate details of your life. You desire him to be that God in your life. 
But for many of us, we just want the cool trips and the cool things. And so following Jesus literally means that we have nothing spiritually. And he says right here in verse number four, if you're there, say I'm there. If you're with me, say yeah. If you're with me, say oh yeah. I can't hear you in the back. If you're with me, say oh yeah. Come on, I can't hear you online. Yell it real loud. Awesome. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So what does it mean to really follow after Jesus? It means to have nothing spiritually. And point number two, it means to hurt over sin. It means to hurt over sin. If you got something to write with, something to write down on, write that down tonight. That's point number two. Following after Jesus means to hurt over sin. The word they use for mourn there is actually the most severe form of mourning. You know, there's, there's two different types of mourning. When my grandmother died in 2009, that was serious mourning. When my first dog died, that was also mourning, not quite as serious. Do you understand? There's a different type of mourning. And the word used here is the most painful, the most severe form of mourning. That is the idea that it hurts you. Jesus explains this in verse 27. He's explaining back his, his, this is the Beatitudes, right, Sermon on the Mount. He's explaining all these through the next two chapters, and he explains this one right here in verse 27. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. You say, Mac, does Jesus really want me to chop my arm off? Or take a grapefruit spoon and gouge my eye out? Is that really what he wants? That's awful drastic. That's exactly the point. You see, what Jesus is saying is not literally that you would get a hacksaw and cut your right arm off, not literally that you would get a sharp edge and gouge your eye out, but instead that you would take a drastic measure to get rid of the sin in your life, whatever it takes. That you would do something drastic to get rid of the sin. Why? Because it hurts you too bad to continue to sin. That you're willing to take drastic measures. Hello, is anybody awake in the room tonight? Then it takes you drastic measures to get rid of the sin. You go, Mac, what does that look like? Uh, maybe it looks like you who can't stop looking at things you shouldn't on your phone. Maybe you take that phone and you charge it in your parents' bedroom every single night. You go, Mac, oh, I don't know if I could do that. That's awful. Drastic, exactly. Uh, maybe for you it's like, uh, uh, man, you can't stop talking about people when you're at school with your friends until you go to the principal and you go, hey, uh, listen, here's the deal. Uh, I need to move lockers to the other side of the school. Well, why? Because I'm right next to my friend and I don't want to be anymore. Because I, I, just, I just keep talking and, and the principal's not going to understand. They go, I don't understand. That seems awful drastic. And you say, exactly. Is that you take whatever measures, whatever means possible to ensure that you don't continue to sin. Why? Because if you do, it will hurt you too bad. See, what Jesus says is blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, what he's saying is that following Christ means to have nothing spiritually. It means to hurt over your sin. It means that you take drastic measures to get rid of the sin in your life because the, 
the morning hurts you so bad when you sin. You see, I know the truth tonight. The truth tonight is there's some of you seated in this room to go, Mac, man, that seems, that's a little crazy. So I'm supposed to be hurting over this sin? I don't think so. I like doing this. I like saying that. I like going there even though I know I'm not supposed to. I like watching that or seeing that or saying that or talking like that. And the reality is for you, you've already made the decision. You've already made the decision about where it is that you're going to stand. You're either going to be at the base of the mountain in the crowd or you're going to follow Jesus to the top as part of the committed. It's your decision. He goes on to say this. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. And then he says this in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to have nothing spiritually. Point number two, it means to hurt over sin. And point number three tonight, if you're writing stuff down, write this down. It means to hunger for spiritual satisfaction. You see, here's the reality tonight. This world offers you all sorts of snacks things that are going to temporarily satisfy whatever desire it is that you have. But the reality of the situation is that none of them are worth it. How many of them are worth it? How many? In the back, how many? None of them are worth it. It reminds me of a time when I was growing up in Georgia. My grandmother, she was the hero of my faith. The reason that I believe she died in 2009 and my, my mom asked me to preach her funeral and it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. She's the hero of my faith. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm up here on this stage because of my grandmother. And my mom asked me to preach her funeral and so I was writing down some stories, some things that I could share, situations I have with my grandmother. And I remember the story of the time that when I was in high school, I went to a different church than my parents did. And our tradition every Sunday was to, was to drive the 15 minutes after church to my grandmother's house to eat lunch. Can, anybody, can anybody's grandmother cook in this room? Anybody's grandmother cook? You can all put your hands down. Mama Sarah could cook way better than you. She was unbelievable. She always made my favorite fried chicken. It was unbelievable. Fried chicken. I'm talking about it's the fried chicken, not like that you, that you batter up and you drop down and deep fry, but you got to stand over the stove because you got a little bit of oil in there and you just got to constantly flip it. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I remembered as I was driving home from, from church, I was hungry. And I went to a different church than my parents and got out a little earlier than they did. And I'm driving home from church. And I remember that we're going to my grandmother's house. I don't need to stop and get anything to eat. And then I remember that one thing my grandmother and I used to do when I was little was one of our favorite things to do was to go to McDonald's and get two apple pies and a sweet tea. And I just happened to think about that. And usually I would make her let me drive. So praise God. When I was 13, 14, she'd let me drive. And she's dead now, so it's okay. And I started thinking about that. And then I happened to pass, guess what? A McDonald's on my way home. And I'm like, man, I'm really hungry. Just two apple pies and a sweet tea. And so I pulled into McDonald's, got up to the order box, real weird, right? Half the time it doesn't work, like their ice cream machine. 
I said, I see two apple pies and a sweet tea. Would you like to try any chicken McNuggets? Yes. How about a McChicken sandwich? Two of them. I was just so hungry. I was like, man, I'll just hammer this food before I get home. My mom won't even know. And so I got around the drive-thru and I had two apple pies and a sweet tea and 10-piece McNugget and two McChicken sandwiches. And I hammered them all the way home. My parents got home from church, got in the car with them, rode up to, to my grandmother's house and got out of my grandmother's house and you could smell the fried chicken outside. I'm talking about you could smell it, man. So good. My grandmother had a garden that she, she would walk home from church. It was two blocks away from her church. And she would walk home and she'd pass by the garden, pick the fresh vegetables and come in and start making fried chicken. Walked in the house and there's my grandmother standing over that skillet, flipping the last of the chicken wings. She knew I wanted the wings because they had a lot of breading and not, not a lot of meat. It was awesome. And so she put it on the plate for me and she began to divvy up my favorite vegetable that she just picked that morning, macaroni and cheese. And she put that on the plate, fixed my glass of sweet tea. We sat down to eat. I'm sitting there next to my grandmother and we're talking and I'm eating a little bit of mac and cheese, a little bit of chicken. She looks over to me and she says, well, honey, is it not good today? I said, oh, no, Mama Sarah. That's what we called her, Mama Sarah. I said, oh, no, Mama Sarah, you know you make the world's best fried chicken. She said, well, you're hardly eating it. I said, Mama Sarah, can I tell you something? She said, yeah, baby, you can tell me anything. I said, you know how we like to go to McDonald's and get two apple pies and a sweet tea? She smiled. She said, yeah, baby. Did you stop and get two apple pies and a sweet tea? I said, I did, and you won't believe what else they put in my bag. I told her that I got two chicken sandwiches and a 10-piece McNugget. And she had this look on her face, and I said, Mama Sarah, are you mad at me? She said, no, honey, I'm not mad at you. I said, are you disappointed in me? She said, I'm not disappointed. I said, well, what is it? She said, I'm just confused. I said, well, what are you confused about? She said, I'm just confused as to why you would stop and get some fake chicken if you knew if you wait just a moment, you could have the real thing. And then we laughed for a second. It's a great story. But as I was preparing my grandmother's funeral, and I remember that story and I wrote it down. Here's what the Lord said to me. Don't miss this. My grandmother said, I, I'm just confused as to why you'd stop and get some fake chicken, but if you had just a moment, you could have the real thing. And here's what I believe God is asking each and every one of you tonight. Students, why will you continue to snack on the fake things of this world if you'll wait just a moment? I got a banquet table of righteousness that will satisfy your every desire. If you'll just wait just a moment, our life is but a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. If you wait just a moment, I got a banquet table of righteousness and you can satisfy your, your, your hunger for righteousness and just with the real thing. And students, that's the reality tonight. I wasn't born yesterday. I know some of you will leave from this place tonight and you will continue your lifestyle of sin. You'll continue to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. 
And you'll continue to come back to events like this saying, Jesus, do something for me. But at some point in time, we're all going to have to answer the question, are we going to be in the crowd or are we going to be committed? You're all going to have to answer that question. My hope and my prayer is that you answer that question tonight. That tonight you make the determination that your life is not going to be defined by you doing whatever you want, whenever you want to do it, saying whatever you want to say, going wherever you want to go. But tonight you decide, I'm tired of playing the game. I'm tired of, I'm tired of, of being halfway in and halfway out. Tonight I will decide that my life is going to be defined by my commitment to Jesus. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around, it's really simple tonight. You said, Mac, why do we have our heads down? Why are our eyes closed? Is this like some secret ballot election? Absolutely not. You're inundated with distractions all day long. I want you to hear clearly what I'm asking you tonight. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around. I just believe that tonight there's people in this room there's people in this room that need to make that decision tonight. There's people in this room that have been walking in the crowd, following Jesus from a distance, worried much about what he could do for you. But tonight, what you want to do, what you desire to do tonight is say, Jesus, I desire to move from the crowd of people who want you to do things for me to the committed follower who knows that my life is in exchange for your life, that I'm put on this earth to live for you. You see, the reality is that Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. That is what you simply earn by living on this earth is death. But it doesn't stop there. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life. Man, it's a free gift. Not that it's a, a free gift that doesn't cost you anything. It's a free gift that you couldn't earn. You see, the misnomer in Christianity is that we have a free gift of God that's not going to cost us anything. No, no, no. It's free because you couldn't earn it. There's nothing you could do to earn it. However, it's going to cost you your life to follow after Jesus. It's the glorious exchange of our rags for his riches. The Bible tells us there's no one righteous, no, not one. The truth is, is that God created us to live in harmony with him. The sin of Adam and Eve entered the earth, created a, a chasm as wide as the Grand Canyon. No matter how far you could run and how far you could jump, you could never clear it on your own. So he sent his son to die for you, to die in your place, to live a perfect life, a sinless life, to die in your place with you on his mind. Because he knew that this very night, for some of you, this very night, you would say, you know what, I'm tired of being the crowd. I want to be part of the committed. He knew that this very night, you would decide that you can't watch him from a distance anymore, that you need to follow him up close and personal. And so tonight, with every head bowed, every eye closed, with nobody looking around, I mean it. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around. I can tell you, I can tell if you're looking at me. If that's you tonight and you would say, Mac, the reality is I came in this room, I did not know Jesus. But tonight, I, I, I can't leave this place without putting my hope and my trust in him. I believe that that I have sinned, I've done whatever I wanted to do, and I'm sick of doing whatever I want to do, and I want to do what he desires me to do. 
If that's you tonight, you say, I know I'm lost, but tonight I desire to be found. I'm dead, but I desire to be alive. I need to be saved tonight. If that's you, would you raise your hand right where you are? Raise it high if that's you. Come on, come on, come on. Anybody else? Raise it high if that's you. I'm talking about like high, like touch the ceiling high. Raise it up in the air high, like high, high, so I can see it all over the room. Anybody else? Say, Mac, I know that I'm lost. I've never put my hope and my trust in Jesus, but tonight I want that to change. I want to say yes to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life. Raise your hand high. Keep it up. If that's you, keep it up all over the room. Every head's bowed, every eye's closed, nobody's looking around. It's just you and me to see this right now. Keep your hand up in the air if that's you. If you got your hand up right now, if you'll just look right here at me. With your hand up, keep your hand up so I know who I'm talking to. Only the people with their hand up look right here at me. Keep your hand up so I know who I'm talking to. Listen, I know we've known each other for about an hour. <laughs> Some of you may be longer, hopefully. But I got to know, do you trust me? 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 Keep your hand up if that's you. Keep your hand up. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me that I would never ask you to do anything that would hurt you or harm you in any way? Do you trust that? I can't see everybody with their hand up. I know there's more. But here's what I want to do. In just a second, in just a second, I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat and to go and talk to someone who has their Bible. If you're a leader, if you're a counselor, will you stand up right now? Are they still in the room? Are they all over there? If you'll stand up right now. I just want to talk to you. Just stay right there. Just stand up. If you're a counselor, stand up right where you are. Counselors, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your Bible. Everybody take your Bible with you. I want you to take your Bible. And when, when a student comes to you, I want you to walk through the gospel of them. Same gender. I want you to sit with the same gender one-on-one. -on -one. I want you to walk through the gospel with this student. Much like what I just did, you can use whatever you want to use. I use a, a little bit of the Romans road. You can do whatever you want to do. I want you to walk them through Scripture so they have a clear understanding of what it looks like to put their hope and their trust in Jesus. That it's not going to be a bed of roses. That Jesus doesn't promise us that our life, that we will never be in pain. He doesn't promise us that. That we won't be without loss. He doesn't promise us that. But he does promise us that he'll sustain us, right? And you'll walk with them through that. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to let them pray, whatever's on their heart. Yes, I do think we have to pray to say, Jesus, I need, I, I need your saving grace. But I want you to let them pray. Just, just let them pray whatever's on their heart. I'll never forget one time I was at an environment much like this, and we ran out of counselors, and I went back to counsel, and I sat with this kid, and he had never been to church in his life, and and and. He told Jesus what was on his heart, that, that, that he knew that he was a sinner and he was in need of a Savior, and Jesus died for him, and he, and he wanted to put his hope and his trust in Jesus. And then when he got done praying, this is what he said. He said, well, Jesus, I guess that's it. 
He didn't even know he needed to say amen. And it was awesome. So leaders, will you do that tonight? So students, here's what I want you to do. Students that have your hand up, put your hand back up so I know who I'm talking to. Your youth pastors are going to be down front, high school and middle school, both of them. They're going to be right down front. And they're going to meet you halfway, and they're going to walk you over to the life room, to your right, to my left. And you're going to meet with a counselor who's going to walk you through the gospel and let you put your hope and your trust in Jesus. Can you do that? Can you do that? She can do that. Can you do that? So if you get your hand up and you say, Mac, I need to put my hope and my trust in Jesus, I'm going to give you a little countdown. Three, two, one, then you're going to move. You're going to come right up front. You're going to come right up front. Three, two, one, go. That's you, go. Hurry. In a hurry. Come on. Come on. Come on. Incredible. Incredible. Come on. In the back. Come on. If that's you, come on up. Come on up. They'll take you over to some counselors, walk you through what this looks like. Come on. Praise God for you. Come on. Come on. So proud of you. So proud of all of you. Incredible. So proud of you. Come on. So proud of you. You see, church, here's the reality. We have made this a somber moment in the church. It is not a somber moment in the church. The reason that we're quiet right now is it's a serious moment. But the reality is, is that some prodigal sons and daughters have come home tonight. So it's not a somber moment. It's instead a serious moment that needs to be celebrated tonight. And so just a second, the band's going to come back up and play. But I don't want to miss anybody else. Is there anybody else who would say, I've never put my hope and my trust in Jesus, but I want to do that tonight. Just come on down. Every head's bowed, every eye's closed, nobody's looking around, it's just you and us. I do believe that there's another group of people in here, and I'll make this extremely quick. There's another group of people in here who have put your hope and your trust in Jesus, but you haven't been living like it. The popular word for this is rededication. I don't use that word. I don't find it in Scripture. The word I do find in Scripture is repentance. Repentance, you got to understand, Scripture calls us to repentance daily. However, there's some point in times in our life where it calls us to confess our sins one to another that we may be healed. Public repentance. You see, repentance is confessing your sin and doing a 180-degree turn and walking the other way. That's a daily action for us as believers. We're going to sin by our nature. However, there are times where we need public repentance, where we need to confess to another believer the sin that we find ourselves in and ask for prayer that we would turn from that. And so that's you tonight, and you would say, Mac, I know for sure that, I, that I'm in the group that's committed. I know for sure, not like I may be, not like I might be, like I know for sure but I haven't been living like it recently. I've been living in some sin, and I need to repent of that tonight. 
I want to firmly plant myself in the group of the committed tonight. I want to say for sure that, uh, that I, I've been there all along, and I, I just need to turn from the sin that makes me look like I'm just in the crowd watching from afar. If that's you tonight, you would say, I'm a born-again believer, but my life hasn't looked like it recently, and I want that to change tonight. Would you raise your hand right where you are? If that's you, don't even raise your hand. Just get up out of your seat and come forward. Just come down front. You're a believer. I don't have to encourage you to do that. You should be mature in your faith to do that. If that's you, just come down front. Come on. Thanks, bro. Incredible. Thank you. Your youth pastors will take you to a counselor that understands that you're not giving your life to Christ tonight, but instead that you need to confess sin one to another. And you need to be held accountable of that. We can do that, right, Corey? Incredible. Anybody else will say, look, I know I'm a believer, but my life hasn't looked like it recently, and I, I need to talk through that with somebody. And all the counselors will understand that these people are not saying they need to give their life to Christ tonight. They're saying that they need some accountability for the sin issue that's in their life. And they want to repent one to another. I'm not naive to think that was everybody tonight. But I do believe that God is going to do what he desires to do when he desires to do it. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. Maybe that day is not yours today. But as the band comes and leads us in some songs, please don't miss the moment tonight. If you indeed need to be saved tonight, that you have never put your hope and your trust in Jesus and you need to be saved, then I pray that you would just go over here to the life room and find a counselor. If you would say that I'm a believer, but God just now put his finger on my life, something that I need to issue, I need to talk about, you would find a counselor to talk about that. Whatever it may be that as the band plays, as the band sings, that you would come. I'm going to pray, and then they're going to leave some worship. Lord, we love you. We're thankful. We're thankful for you, God. We're grateful. Grateful for what you've done tonight. In fact, God, I think right now we just need to give it up for every person that crossed from death to life tonight. Can we do that in this room? Just unbelievable. Come on, you can be louder than that. Come on. Come on. Cross from death to life tonight, God. We're grateful for prodigal sons and daughters coming home. We're grateful for born-again believers who will leave this place who came in tonight, not even being in the crowd, much less the committed, but somehow found their way to the top of the mountain tonight and said, Jesus, I desire to live for you all the days of my life. And so, God, I'm grateful for them. God, I pray that you continue to move. God, I pray you continue to speak. And soon as I hope you hear me say this, that if God speaks to you in the midst of a song, you better move because that's what he's commanded of you. You've got to understand our relationship with Jesus is all about worship. What is worship? The definition of worship is the harmony of revelation and response. God reveals, we respond, that's worship. God reveals, we respond, that's worship. If God reveals to you during this song that there's a sin issue in your life that you need to deal with, you better respond, that's worship. If God reveals to you that you're lost, dying, going to hell, and you need to be saved, you better respond, that's worship.
And so, God, I pray that we respond as we sing your praise. It's your holy name I pray, God. Amen.